How's everybody doing this morning? I mean, y'all glad to be here in the church? Absolutely. Uh, really glad you guys are here today. We're continuing in our series called Exponential uh, about making disciples. And today, two weeks ago, uh, we talked about chair one, which was the lost and, and, and the needs of the person there. And as, as we move through the chairs, Jesus makes different challenges and, and asks different, uh, different things of us. So today, we're talking about chair two, which is the believer. And uh, the main thing today is Jesus' second invitation is to follow me. All right, so one of the things that, that uh, my kids and I did when, we were, when they were little, we watched The Wizard of Oz. Anybody watch Wizard of Oz? Yep, okay. Uh, the movie really lets us down because there's a big story behind one of the characters, uh, the Tin Man. When, when you're watching the movie, the Tin Man, we just kind of meet him. He's rusted in the middle of a field, right? Well, the story in the, in the book, it shows how he got there. I think it has tremendous relevance for us today. All right. Uh, the woodsman actually at one point had been a real man who was in love with a beautiful maiden. It was his dream to marry her once he could earn enough money to marry her. All right. The wicked witch hated this love, the, 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 uh, the book tells us, and she cast spells upon the man so that the axe would slip and he would injure himself, kind of like the black knight in Monty Python. <laughs> You know, it was but a scratch. Well, the, the, so the, the tenor would come in and, and replace his arm with a tin arm. And then and, and he cut off this arm and, and, and he uh, uh, was replaced one by one with, with limbs. At first, it seemed like it was an advantage, the book says, for his metal frame allowed him to work nearly as powerfully as a machine. With a heart of love and arms that never tired, he seemed sure to win. And the book writes this, I thought I'd beaten the wicked witch when I, then, and I worked harder than ever, but I knew how, I little knew how cruel my enemy could be. She thought of a new way to kill my love for the beautiful maiden and made my axe slip again so that it cut right through my body, splitting into two halves. Okay. Once more, the tenor came to my help and made me a body of tin, fastening my tin arms and legs and head to it by means of joints so that I could move around as well as ever. But alas, I now had no heart, the tin man says, so that I lost all my love for the girl and I did not care whether I married her or not. My body shone brightly uh, in the sun and I felt very proud of it. It did not matter now if my ax slipped for it could not hurt me now. There was only one danger, that my joints would rust, but I kept an oil can uh, and took care to oil myself whenever I needed. However, there came a day when I forgot to do this, and being caught in the rainstorm before I had, uh, or I had thought of the danger, my joints had rusted, and I was left to stand in the woods until you came to find me. It was a terrible thing to undergo, but during the year that I stood there, the tin man had been there a year. I stood there, I had time to think the greatest loss I had known was the loss of my heart. When I was in love, I was the happiest man on earth, but no, one, but no one can love who has not a heart. And so I resolved to ask Oz to give me one. If he does, I will go back to the munchkin maiden and marry her. Both Dorothy and the scarecrow had, had been greatly interested in the story of the 10 woodsmen. And now they knew why he was so anxious to get a new heart. All the same, said the scarecrow, I shall ask for brains instead of a heart. For a fool would not know what to do with the heart if he had one. I shall take the heart, the ten woodsmen said, for brains do not make one happy, and happiness is the best thing in the world. See, the, the ten men had transformed. 
He was a living, breathing man who was in love. But life happened. He got injured. He got hurt. And he hardened himself against the hurt. And he became someone who could not love, who could not feel. And in a, for, a, for a, a little bit of time, that was a great thing because he couldn't get hurt. And he didn't have to worry about love. And it, ha- and it helped him for a while. But one little step at a time, he lost who he was. Little by little, one hurt after another. One mistake, one tragedy, whatever, transformed him into a machine. And that is the story of a lot of us in here today. Sometimes we find ourselves very different than how God created us to be. And he looked a lot like a man, but inside he was different. The story of the tin man reminds me of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, we talked about a couple weeks ago, however, instead of winding up sleeping in a pigsty like the prodigal son, Tin Man found himself rusted in the middle of a field. It doesn't really matter whether it's a pigsty or, a, or an open field. The point is they realize their true state and they realize it through pain, you all. What both of them realized is how far they had fallen from who they used to be, how, uh, uh, who they were meant to be. And the things that they had recently celebrated became their greatest source of pain. Does that sound familiar? Yeah? Now the only driving passion in their lives, both the prodigal son and the ten men, was to get back to the way they used to be, the way that they were designed to be, where they had joy, their original identities. And the prodigal son wanted to go back to his father's home because that's the only place he knew love and was willing to even be a slave. He could just go back and reconnect with his father. Ten men want to go back to his one true love and be human again to who he was supposed to be. And that, my friends, is the Christian faith right there. It's what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. I would imagine a lot of us find ourselves in this story. True? Can I get an amen? We're creating the image of God, alive, living, breathing, fun, full of joy, and then life happened. Either through sin, like the prodigal son actually going away from God, or through pain, we changed. We lost our way, and honestly, for a while, we liked it. We celebrated it. We celebrated our new imperviousness from pain. We celebrated our newfound friends, and it was good. We celebrated a new invincibility, our imperviousness to pain, our isolation from others. We celebrated it. Then it hit. You ran out of money, like the prodigal son. Your friends left you and you realize you walked away from the people that loved you and went to people that didn't love you. Or you experience pain, you realize there's no one there for you like the 10 woodsmen because you pushed everyone away in your efficiency, in your desire for success. And now you're doing everything you can to simply make it back to where life makes sense again. Well, if that is you today, I've got good news. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this. Those who are in Christ Jesus are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Two weeks ago, we saw the main point of chair one right here was conversion. It was moving from being lost to being saved, and that is a huge decision. But the action of person as, as we move here is transformation. So conversion is the main thing in chair one. And then conversion is the main thing in chair two. Two weeks ago, we said that Jesus made a, he just said, hey, come and see. Come see what I'm doing. Low commitment. Not asking for anything. Just come and see. Observe. And when the disciples did that, they found it was pretty amazing. 
And so now that they became followers of him, then Jesus changes, he makes a little bit more of a commitment. Now he says, follow me. Not come and see. Now he says, follow me. And once we convert to the Christian faith, Jesus' invitation changes, okay? They actually share a woman's conversion. But the second one is transformation. Now, this is a dangerous chair to be in, the learner, because you're a recent convert. This is the second stage of discipleship. This is a dangerous place to be. Make no bones about it. Many, many people have moved from chair one to chair two. Million, billions. But many, many, many fall away. Studies put out by the Billy Graham Association, probably the most effective person in getting people to move from chair one to chair two in the history of the world, showed something, uh, something very, 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 very bad. They found that 80% of people who came forward at Billy Graham rallies within five years were not in church, they, had no, they were not living a Christian lifestyle, they didn't have Christian beliefs, 80% of them. In other, in other words, they'd fallen away, they found three reasons for this. Three reasons why this is such a, 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 a there's so much attrition in this chair right here. Three, the first one is this, is that all your habits are still lost. Write this down, all your habits are still lost. When you convert to Jesus Christ, all your, 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 your heart changes, but all your habits are still on the enemy's side. Your friends are still the same. Your contacts and your cell phone are still the same. Your movie habits, your music habits, your drinking habits, your language habits, your time and money habits are still lost. Those convert at a slower rate than you do. And guys, uh, uh, and because around 90% of our behavior is habit, if those habits are still lost, it's only a matter of time before we fall out of chair too. Okay? And, and, and because the, these, these habits that we have weigh like an anchor on our newfound faith. And that's what, one of the reasons why so many people fall away in chair two. Very vulnerable. So the habits are, the second reason is this. They don't know what they're signing up for. Okay? We, I've experienced that many of you got as an EMT. Hey, I'm having a heart attack. Come fix me up. Keep me from dying. And then when I no longer have a problem, see you later. A lot of people use God as an EMT and my life's in crisis, my marriage is falling apart. And then when God, once God comes in and fixes that, then you say, well, I don't need you anymore. I don't need an EMT when I'm fine. Your problem's over, I don't need you anymore, okay? See, when the church presents Jesus Christ as a solution to your problems, and he is a solution to your problem, believe me, but if you only present Jesus as a solution to the problem, then once the problem is solved, you don't need him anymore. And that's what a lot of people do, okay? Once your health is good again, why call EMT? They don't know that following Jesus is a lifetime commitment. That's not what they signed up for, and the church sold them a false bill of goods. That's one of the reasons why people fall away, okay? Or they were sold that God loves you as a plan for your life sales pitch. You heard that one? I've heard that one. Well, when the call to actually follow Jesus comes around, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was uh, in this to get blessed. You didn't say anything about following Jesus. You didn't say anything about changing, about surrendering to his authority. No, you didn't say that. I'm out of here. Okay? So they didn't know what they were signing up for. That was, that's the second reason why people fall away. The third one is this, and we have to acknowledge this, a bad experience in church. Right? We have to acknowledge this, that some people, a lot of people have a bad experience in church. Sometimes people fall away because they encounter a, a, a nasty person or a bad situation in church. And we all know those, those exist. I know those exist because I've dealt with them, okay? 
If you think you've had a bad experience in church, please just go talk to a pastor. Because we've had a lot more than everybody else. Okay, that caused some people to walk away. But I will say this. I've had bad experiences a lot of places. Doesn't mean I walk away. Marriage isn't always great. Your spouse is going to hurt you and you're going to hurt your spouse. And doesn't mean you get a divorce. Right? Okay, same is true of church. When those three things explain the danger in this chair, when Jesus calls us to chair two, when he calls us to follow him, it's for total transformation of our whole lives. And there are two ways he transforms us. One is eternity. Okay, Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I was wondering what it was like in the Old Testament, like, you know, the, the guys that talk to God. God appears to Moses, actually speaks with him. I like to go talk to Moses and say, what was that like? Man, you got to talk with God face to face. You know what Moses would say to us? He would say, no, 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 we only got that like twice in our entire life. I want to ask you, you New Testament believers that have the Holy Spirit within you, you have God with you 24-7. What is that like? I mean, I imagine that, that it's just amazing. And I'm like, um, what do you think it's like? And Moses would say, oh, man, I, I imagine that, you know, you're in constant contact with the Holy Spirit. God is directing your life. Every, so you're avoiding every sin, every bad thought. You're taking the right path because you're constantly, the Holy Spirit's leading you and guiding you. And, and I mean, life must be amazing. And I'm like, right. It's exactly what it's like. He goes, I knew it, man. You American Christians are amazing. What do you think it's like? We have the Holy Spirit with us all the time. If you have moved from chair one to chair two, God is literally living within you, leading you and guiding you and directing you. Okay? He transforms us that way. He transforms us eternally. John 5, 24 says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. That is a deep and amazing truth that if you are, have become a Christian, you have changed your eternal address from hell to heaven. I mean, can God get a, 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 an amen for that one? I mean, amazing. But a lot of people think that that is it. That that's it. That's the whole point of Christianity. Well, I mean, that's part of it. But it's not nearly the whole thing, okay? I know so many people, Christian people, who are just wandering through life, not really experiencing any victory, not experiencing any, uh, much of anything, thinking their faith is only for the future. And someday I'll die and go to heaven, someday. And the, the mentality, I see it all the time, uh, all the while, same issues, the same problems, the same, well, dysfunction continues to dominate our lives. Hey, I'm a Christian, but why do I still react to things the way I do? I, I'm a Christian, but why can't I seem to conquer my addictions? I, I'm, I mean, I'm a Christian, but why am I so unsatisfied at work? And I'm a Christian, but why do I treat people so badly? I don't even understand my own actions. Well, that's because you're not thinking total transformation. See, it's not just eternity that we're talking about. We're talking about right now. Second one right now, John 10, 10, the verse that led me to Christ. This one right here, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. You ever wonder why these two statements are wedded together? Jesus came to bring us life, life to the full. But what would happen before that? The enemy would try to steal and kill and destroy. Some of you all know that firsthand. See, chair two is about more than just transforming our eternity. It's about realizing that Jesus is here to bring us life and life to the full in the midst of a war. Now, if you don't understand that we're in a world at war, 
you won't understand the Christian faith. You won't understand much of anything. Okay? You certainly won't understand life. There's a huge battle going on over you and over me right now. War is the backdrop for all of Scripture. And we've been so blind to it. We're like Americans at Pearl Harbor, January, I mean, December 7, 1941. The bombs dropping, explosion going off. We look at it and we just go, well, that's life. Life's tough. We don't understand there's a war going on. Uh, divorce, overdose, murder, riots, dead, 9-11, Christian persecution, terror. Oh, we just say, oh, that's just life, right? Ten men in Wizard of Oz didn't realize he was at war, y'all. The wicked witch was waging war the entire time, and the only time he realized it was when he was rusted in a field. If he was like the average normal Christian, he would just said, well, I'm stuck. One of these days I'll die and go to heaven. That's about it. I'll just have to deal with my current state until then, right? Prodigal son was face down in a ditch, feeding pigs and starving. If he was like the average American Christian today, he'd be like, well, that's life. That's just the way it is. Life's tough. Maybe one of these days, I'll die and go to heaven. And I just want to grab both the ten man and the prodigal son and anybody in here that is thinking like that and shake you into reality and say, that's not what Jesus has for you. He has come to give you life and life to the full now. Okay, you may be saying something, something similar, like, uh, like uh, well, I'm stuck in a job I hate, my marriage is so-so on a good day, my family's messed up, I'm addicted to something, but you know, hey, that's life. One of these days, I may die and go to heaven. And when Jesus says, I've come to give you life to the full, that's not a reference to heaven, y'all, that's a reference to right now, okay? We have to wake up and realize we're at war. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the Army. Any veterans in here today? Veterans? Thank you for your service. I was talking to a friend of mine who was, uh, who was in the Army, and he, I, I asked him a question. I said, what do you do when you come under fire? He goes, you return fire. I said, you mean don't, you don't duck and cover? You don't uh, you know, hide? You don't wonder why someone's shooting at you? He goes, no, you return fire. Someone shoots at you, you shoot back. That's what the Army trains soldiers to do. In the book Fearless about Navy SEAL Adam Brown, I highly recommend it, by the way. During training, a SEAL instructor came up to him and said, Brown, you were in, on patrol with you and one other guy. You been, begin taking fire, and your friend is hit. What do you do? First thing, sir, Brown replied instantly, is win the fight. That always stuck with me. Win the fight. That's what soldiers are told. Not duck and cover. Not wonder why they're taking fire. Not even stop to care for the casualties. Win the fight. It's the first thing you have to do. How many of us people, when we're attacked, though, our first thought is to win the fight? You're tempted to commit adultery, and you return fire, and you say, get behind me, Satan. You're tempted to quit. You're tempted to spread gossip. You're tempted to anger. Do you return fire? Is that your first thought in the fight, to win the fight? That's what we have to do, you all. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to, if we're going to have this life that Jesus promised us, we're going to have to return fire. Because our enemy, Satan, is trying to steal and kill and destroy that which Jesus is trying to do in you. But you know what Satan's true masterpiece against us is? You know what his true masterpiece is? It's a thing called friendly fire. And friendly fire, if you know what friendly fire is, it's not so friendly. It's where people on the same team shoot each other. Do you really know who your enemy is, you all? Catalyst? Do you know who your enemy really is? Many of you think that it's someone in your life. 
Maybe you think it's a person with opposing political views in you. Maybe you think it's someone in your family. Maybe you think it's someone, some politician somewhere. Maybe you, you know, the Bible tells us something very different. That person is not your enemy. There's not one person in here or in this world that is your enemy. Not one. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 6, 12, says this, put on the full armor of God so that you may take, take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Understand, Paul is saying, your struggle is not with people. The people are not your enemy. Our struggle is against the, the, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Many of us, if we were honest with ourselves, are guilty of treating Satan like a friend and our friends as enemies. We listen to Satan and his lies and we disregard our family. We listen to people that don't love us and we disregard the people that do. We welcome Satan as temptations and we shoot the people who try to help. This person is not your enemy, Satan is. Make sure that you understand when you return fire, you actually return fire at your enemy and not your friends, not your family. Make sure that when you go to war, it's against the enemy. Someone calls you out on a sin, return fire at Satan, not at them. Someone speaks truth to you, don't return fire on them. Fight the enemy, not your friends, not your family, not your church family. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And when you decide to fight, when you decide to respond to the call of Jesus to follow me, something radically happens. Something radical uh, happens. We become part of a larger story going on around us. You guys know there's a larger story than your little life going on? Do you guys know that? That the, the universe didn't, like time didn't start when you were born? You, you know that? Because a lot of us don't. Okay, we've become part of the larger story going on around us. John 1, says this, the next day Jesus directed, uh, decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. When Jesus says, follow me, it's an invitation to something bigger going on. Um, all, of the, all the best movies are about this. I'm gonna name Star Wars. You got any Star Wars fans in here? Yeah, Matrix, Matrix fans, yeah. Uh, how about Lord of the Rings? Got Lord of the Rings? Yeah, absolutely. All three of them have the same plot. Did you know that? Same plot. There's some little dude going about his business, and all of a sudden, he is sucked into a world, a bigger story going on. Luke is hanging out on Tatooine, fixing moisture, evapor moisture evaporators, condensers. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, he is, he, he is invited into this huge war going on that he was oblivious to. He becomes a, becomes a hero of the Rebel Alliance. The Matrix, uh, Mr. Anderson, just a computer programmer going about his business in this little cubicle, and all of a sudden, he gets red-pilled into this huge battle going on. Computers versus people for life and death. Lord of the Rings, here's Frodo Baggins just being a hobbit, being, doing his little thing in the Shire. And all of a sudden, Gandalf invites him into this huge war for life and death. That's exactly what happens when Jesus reaches you. He invites you into his story. And what you thought was just life, you just get just get invited into this huge story going on. Then previously, you know, just been waking up, going to work, raising kids, PTO meetings, watching football, basketball, chick flicks, life sucks, then you die. Then Jesus says, come follow me. And he invites you into this massive story that's been going on since the beginning of time. Jesus' disciples were just ordinary fishermen, laborers, tax collectors. The son of God said, follow me. And he invites them into this amazing thing called discipleship. 
became part of the large story going on around the story of God. When Jesus says, follow me, that's what he invites you to. When I was in college, I wanted to be in the FBI. I wanted to be an FBI agent. That was my goal. That was me. That was what Dave Kibler wanted for Dave Kibler's life. You ever seen the, the, the show Criminal Minds? No, that, that's what I wanted to do. I, I, wanted, I was a psych major. I, I wanted to deal with the worst of the worst. I wanted to profile serial killers. I want to go after them. Uh, I wanted to do that. That's what I wanted for me, okay? Um, nothing wrong with that. Just, that's just not what God wanted me to do. I was sitting in church one, one day when I was in college, and God called me to ministry, as clear as I'm speaking to you. And he invited me into this massive story that he's been going, that's, this massive war that's been going on. That was, that when, when, that's what Jesus said when he called, he called me to follow him. And it's been, the, the, someone said that the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Everyone in here has had their first day. But have you had your second do you know why you were born? Do you know why you were created? Do you know why you are here in Nicholsville, Kentucky in 2023? Do you know why? It's so that Jesus can call you to follow him into this massive story that's going on that we've previously been oblivious to, you all. And when Jesus says, I've come to give you life to the full, that's exactly what it is. That's what most of us are missing there's a lot of factors right now. Uh, all, all, America's in a mental health crisis right now. We're having a mental health crisis. Do you all know that? I mean, if you don't know it, I don't know where you've been. Okay? We're having all kinds of mental health crisis. I've never seen it like this before in my life. Now, there are a lot of reasons, a lot of factors, and I'm not going to go into all of them. But I will tell you this, that loss of purpose is the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest reason for this crisis. I can't tell you how many people, young and old, that I've seen, their lives are a train wreck, just going under, not doing anything well, not doing great, uh, uh, and, and, and they try to go get help, and people will spend 50, 100 bucks an hour to sit down with some professional to tell them, to, to ask them, uh, you know, how, can you help me? And the professional always starts with, well, let's talk about what happened to you to get you here. What was your childhood like? What was your relationship with your parents? And the, those are big questions. But I'll tell you this, what really moves people to a place of wholeness and out of their tailspin is not understanding what happened to you, but getting turned on to some great vision and some great purpose that they can commit themselves to. I can't tell you how many people just going under and they find something that they commit themselves to, some great purpose that's bigger than them. And all of a sudden, life just starts, they just start doing great. Purpose is probably the biggest thing that we're lacking right now in America that is driving our mental health crisis as people abandon faith, abandon family, all the things that give us purpose, we're suffering for it. And if you can get turned on to the great purpose that God has for you, watch so many things in your life just fade away. There's six things that Jesus does when we're in this, when, we, when he moves us into this great story, when he moves us from chair one to chair two, there's six things that he does. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you them very quickly. I want you to write these down. Number one, these are the six things that happen in this chair. When Jesus says, follow me, these are things that Jesus modeled for his disciples when they were in chair two. Number one is total dependence on the Holy Spirit. 
Total dependence on the Holy Spirit. It means I quit listening to myself. I quit listening to social media. I quit listening to politicians. I quit listening to people that I don't even know and don't love me. And I start listening to the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3, 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit is who leads us and guides us every day, every moment, every, every hour. He speaks to us every day, counseling us, correcting us, uh, uh, comforting us. Okay, He's the one who begins to mold us and make us, to transform us into someone that looks and, and acts like Jesus. Someone once asked me what a spirit-filled person looks like. Very, very easy. Galatians 5, 22 to 23, a spirit-filled person, someone who has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As the Holy Spirit takes over your life, you begin to manifest those nine things more and more and more. That's what a spirit-filled person looks like, okay? Known as the fruit of the Spirit, right? The second thing that, uh, that, that uh, Jesus does for us uh, is he teaches us the centrality of prayer. So total depends on the Holy Spirit and the centrality of prayer, all right, uh, Luke 4, 1 through 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those times, and at the end of them he was very hungry. Jesus fasted and prayed at the beginning of his ministry. More and more, as he did greater and greater things, he withdrew and, and, uh, and, and uh, got alone to pray. He modeled this for his disciples. The centrality of prayer is key at this stage, okay? I, I have to confess something. We're not doing so well in the prayer department, y'all. I mean, uh, there's a study that came out, it's awful. You know the average pastor prays about three minutes a day. Three minutes. And if that's what pastors are doing, how can we expect our people to do more than that? We have to be the example. So that, that was a kick in the pants to me, all right? Centrality of prayer. If Jesus, who was God, thought prayer was very important, so do we. We have to do that as well. The third thing that, uh, that, that Jesus models for us in this stage is obedience to God. Uh, John 5.30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus constantly emphasized that he was not doing things on his own. This is not from me. This is not to fulfill me. This is not from me. I am obedient to God and God only. This is crucial for being disciples. I've been a soccer coach for many years. Matter of fact, this fall season will be my 21st season coaching school ball. 21st season. I've had great, I've had great players. I've had terrible players. I've had great kids, overwhelming majority great kids, five or six bad ones. Okay, that, that's about it. But I'll tell you this, uncoachable kids are terrible. They're awful. Tony Dungy said that uncoachable kids become unemployable adults. Same is true of disciples. Disobedient people never become disciples of Jesus. Are there areas of disobedience to God in your life, people? Are you uncoachable? Of course there are. At this stage of discipleship, you begin to turn those things over to God. And uh, this is major. We're going to be transformed. Remember, habits make about 90% of your behavior. If you have disobedient habits, toxic habits, you're not going to last long as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay? You gotta take those habits and make them obedient to God. Fourth thing is this, you learn the centrality of God's word. Uh, Matthew 20, 22, 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. My question to Cattle's Christian Church is not do you know the word of God. My question is, do you love the word of God? Do you love it? Does it drive your life? 
Um, it's a treasure above treasures, and most of us have no idea what God's word truly says. Um, I, I, confession time, you guys. Um, not a lot of things in my life with, with Christ and faith that I do well. Um, I'm a three out of ten as a prayer warrior on a good day. Um, my wife tells me my empathy levels could need a, little, a lot of work, and that's an understatement. But I'll tell you this. One of the things I've truly found victory in is my study of God's word. I love it. I found God's way is the best way. I can't find a single command in there that if I followed it would ruin me. What peace we have, what lack of tension and problems we have when we make the word of God central to our lives. I'm telling you people, our lives are a mess because of ourselves. And if we, want to stop, if we were to stop creating problems for ourselves, life would be a lot easier. Can I get an amen? 24 years of ministry, I've yet to counsel a person or a couple whose problem did not stem from disobedience to the Word of God. I can sit down with a person or a couple, and they tell me what's going on. I can go to Scripture, says Scripture says this, you guys did this, and that's why there's a problem. 100% of the time, there's not a problem that has gone through my office door that has not been already addressed in the word of God and the problem is a result of a disobedience of it. I kid you not. So if the word of God becomes central to our lives, guess what? The peace, the lack of tension, the lack of creating problems for yourselves brings such a joy into your life. All right? Fifth thing is this. Magnifying God. When you move from chair one to chair two and you become, you, 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 uh, become the learner, all of a sudden your magnification of yourself decreases and your magnification of God increases. John 8, 28, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own, but speak what my Father has taught me. When Jesus moves you into this larger story of you going on, you spend all of your time just marveling the awesomeness of God. Um, I went to, uh, back, back about 20 years ago, there's this big, huge movement among college students called Passion. And uh, I was in a field in Sherman, Texas in 2003 with the college uh, students from our church. And there were like 20,000 college students there. All right. And they made a live recording and I bought it and everything. And, uh, and I was playing it for my kids. And, it, it, and then uh, the music kind of cut out, and, and they recorded the, the crowd singing along with Chris Tomlin and everything. And I joked, like, hey, did you hear me sing? And I'm like, dad, dad jokes, lame. And, but really, that's what so many of us are doing right now, y'all. <laughs> that's what so many of us are doing. We're trying to find ourselves, trying to find ourselves in the crowd when the, when the focus, what, should have been on him, all right? When God transforms us, he shows us the centrality of him, that we are no longer, that we're just merely supporting actors, not the, not the, uh, not, not the main character, all right? He's a central character, worthy of all the glory and honor and praise. He becomes a central character of our lives, and we just realize we're extras, and that's awesome. You know why? You know why that's awesome? Because when you realize life is not about you, it's not about making you bigger, it's not about making your name bigger, but making God's name bigger, 
oh my goodness, you start to really enjoy and find joy in life. Uh, someone said this, we go to the wonders of creation, the Grand Canyon, uh, Niagara Falls, Mount Everest, we go to those because you and I were made and created to behold and enjoy greatness. And I'll tell you, there's not one person who's looked at the vastness of the Grand Canyon or the majesty of Mount Everest and said, hey, I'm pretty good. No, we were, be, we were made to behold and enjoy greatness. And let me tell you something, people, the beauty of creation is nothing compared to the beauty of the creator. And so if you and I make it our lives to just enjoy God making much of himself, that is when you start really living less of me, more of God. Secret to joy and the last thing that he teaches us that Jesus modeled is love. Mark 12, 29 through 30, Jesus said, I'm gonna sum up the whole Bible in two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. And Jesus modeled for that, modeled that for us. Not just with words, but with actions. By going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world so that you and I could have access to God because he loved us that much. Love is what grows in the believer, right? If you're discipling someone in chair two, if you're a discipler, then make sure that these six things, make sure these, you're modeling these six things. Make sure you're modeling love. And if you're someone in, uh, in chair two right now, if you're a learner, that's where you are. Let your love grow and grow and grow. These are the things that Jesus modeled for his disciples. If there's anyone in here who's the tin man standing rusted in the field, you realize that you are not where you're supposed to be. You realize that you've, You've, you've wandered from who God created you to be. I've got good news. Jesus says, come follow me. Come follow me. The question is, are you gonna do it? Are you gonna do it? Guys, y'all are awesome. I love you. See you next Sunday. Bye-bye. <laughs>